Chinatown Dream stands a statue of George Washington. Imagine if it could talk. Well, we have the next best thing. The Morristown and Township Library has a new statue, and this one does talk. In this special episode of the Morristown Green podcast, we're going to replay an interview with the late Stephen B. Wiley, the founding father of modern Morristown. Hi, I'm Kevin Coughlin. Thanks for tuning in. Today's presentation is brought to you by the Community Foundation of New Jersey, creating and scaling custom solutions for philanthropy-minded individuals, families, and businesses for more than 40 years. And by the Morristown and Morris Township Library, your doorway to the past, present, and future. And by the Mayo Performing Arts Center. See the full lineup of events at mayoarts.org. And by the Morris Educational Foundation, working to enrich and inspire the academic pursuits of all our students in the Morris School District from preschool through high school. When Steve Wiley died in 2015 at age 86, civil rights activist Felicia Jameson said, Anything that's great in Morristown, Stephen B. Wiley had something to do with it. This Morristown High School football player was a successful lawyer, businessman, and politician. And as we'll hear, a pretty fair poet. He also raised millions of dollars to preserve the historic Morristown Green, transform a crumbling theater into a world-class performing arts center, and, right across the street, expand the library, where his bronze likeness now welcomes visitors. But many say Steve Wiley's greatest legacy is the Morris School District. A half century ago, he won a scorching legal battle to merge Morristown and Morris Township schools. Greater Morristown is thriving today thanks largely to this district, widely hailed as a beacon of diversity. How did he do all this? Why did he do it? We asked Steve Wiley back in December 2007. He had just published a volume of poetry. I'm with Steve Wiley, who uh, you might call Mr. Morristown. He's been involved in fundraising for the Morristown Green and the Community Theater. As an attorney, he was instrumental in merging the local school districts and uh, now he can add to uh, his titles poet. He's written his second book of poetry called Mockingbird Come Home. Steve, tell us uh, first about the title. Well, there's a poem in there called Mockingbird Come Home. I'm kind of interested in mockingbirds. There's one who comes back here in the summertime, and it's always fun to welcome him back. They're very, uh, they're fun. They talk to you, and they, they like to be around people. They come down to the little trees where they can be close to you. Now, you uh, made your living as an attorney, and as someone who's read a lot of legal briefs, they're full of jargon that's incomprehensible. Your prose is very clear and easy to understand. Why can't most lawyers write so that we can understand them? Uh, I guess they're writing their audiences, uh, lawyers probably, other lawyers, or courts who are composed of lawyers. So they tend to write in legalese. Uh, it's too bad uh, to get too deeply into that. You can uh, you can be clear without necessarily being heavy. In fact, I I tried to do that when I was writing in, in the law. 
And I think I did pretty well writing briefs that were comprehensible. And I didn't start out that way. I learned that uh, over the years. What do they teach in law school? Do they teach you how to write things in law school? No, not in the law school I went to. You, you learn to write, but you learn to write with precision. That's the principal thing. Uh, you don't, or I did not have, have the benefit of a teacher who talked more of the artistry of it. But uh, writing with precision, speaking with precision, using the language with precision is fundamentally important to a lawyer, of course. You began writing poetry at the age of 70. How did you come to write poetry? Uh, good question. Don't know the answer. I, I have had a... Uh, I may have scribbled a couple of things over the years, but uh, didn't do it seriously. Never read poetry, interestingly, until... We were talking about uh, how I got into writing poetry. I had not done it uh, over the years uh, at all. In fact, I had not been a student of poetry or a reader of poetry, particularly. I found it very difficult to understand. I still find it difficult to understand a lot of poetry. And I like to be, I like to, whatever I write, I like to have it be clear and, and hopefully concise. Uh, but I wanted to know more about poetry and why there was, why it got all the attention it's gotten over the years. And so I looked at the, uh, figured I'd take a course. And I looked at uh, Drew and Fairleigh Dickinson and St. Elizabeth's, the three colleges nearby here. That uh, it was the fall semester of uh, 2000 to see if any of them was had a course in poetry. And one of them did. St. Elizabeth's did a course, a course in contemporary poetry. So I went over there and signed up for that. And uh, turned out that the uh, person giving that uh, course, uh, Laura Winters, Dr. Winters, who was chairman of the English department at St. Elizabeth's. Uh, well, it turned out that she was in charge of that course and teaching it, and she is a marvelous, inspiring teacher. And uh, I learned a great deal from her, and she is, an, in addition to being a great teacher, she's a lovely person. And I got to know her quite well, and I have stayed in touch with her over these years. I send poems to her all the time just to get her judgment on them. Is she your editor? No, she's not the editor. A fellow named Neil uh, Stores is the editor. I happen to apply. It's another story. But uh, uh, but she's just a wonderful help. And I will send her groups of poems uh, frequently, and I've done it year after year. And she takes great interest in it and comments. And I find it very interesting very helpful. What is it that appeals to you about writing poetry? What appeals to me about it? Well, of course, it appeals to me if people understand what I'm writing. If I have an idea or an experience to write about, if I can trigger that in them, I'll tell you how it works. I am prompted to write a poem when something moves me. Either my heart skips a beat, or I catch my breath, or I have a feeling in my chest something prompted that. I try to think of what it was that prompted it naturally if I do it in fairly contemporaneously, it's, it's relatively easy. I know what prompted that. Then I enjoy trying to trans that, transmit that feeling to someone else. I feel if I can write it up the way I remember it accurately and clearly, 
another person ought to have the same fun, the same, feel the same impact that I felt. Do you write it down on the spot? I would, I might jot down a word or two just to aid the recollection. But no, it takes takes longer. And then in actually writing it, I find I, I write and rewrite, as you would know, time after time after time, dozens of times, in order to, to boil it down, get the essence of it, and still convey the sense of what I, what I had in mind. Have you become a fan of other poets? Yes. Uh, I, I do have favorite poets and other poets that are not so favored. Uh, Jane Kenyon, for instance, is not well known, but she writes uh, understandably, understandable things, simple things in direct and simple language, and it's very beautiful. She's the wife, or was the wife, she died, she was the wife of uh, Donald Hall, who turned out to, who was poet laureate last year in the United States. And there are others similar to that. What advice do you have for aspiring poets? Write, 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 write. But I would suggest, just based on my own experience, get in front of a uh, uh, a good teacher and let that person guide you. And they'll get you to write, and they'll they'll point things out to you that would be helpful shorten your learning time and uh, if it's in Morristown go see Laura Winters the, the woman who I speak of Dr. Winters at St. Elizabeth she is marvelous now you're, you're 78 years of age and you began writing poetry at the age of 70 at a time when many people are kicking back and taking it easy what is your philosophy about the so called golden years uh, I don't think it should be any different of you I, do, I don't have to make a living the way I did before. Fortunately, I've been able to accumulate enough that I can coast along on that. So I don't have to be in a money-making role. But I have enjoyed in that period, and I still enjoy uh, leading, a, leading some kind of activity, raising money for the Morristown Library or, or what have you. Uh, so as... as, as uh, depending on how fortunate you are in terms of having health and strength. If you have it, use it. If you have it, use it. And use it in something that's productive and helpful to people and satisfying to you. We, uh, we learned last summer, I guess, or I learned living here in town, just how integral the green is to our daily life because the green was closed uh, while they were doing <laughs> renovations. I know you were involved with the, the green uh, upgrade. Um, just curious, why did they decide to do it during the summer months? Could they have done so in the spring or the fall? Well, I think it was... Uh, we, set, we set an objective. We originally set an objective of the spring, which would have... Uh, spring of, of this year which would have meant uh, getting all the work done in late winter or, or early spring. And we originally talked about a date in May for dedication. Then it turned out to be simply impractical to achieve that. And so we thought we'd shift our focus to the fall. And within the fall, we didn't want to, we focused on October, 
so it would get be there be done before the bad weather came. And after some standard events got out of the way, the fall festival and things of that kind in September. So we picked October 10th, and uh, that gave us the time to do what had to be done. And uh, how do you feel about the way it turned out? And we had also, by the way, we had raised the 4.6 million, which and the uh, my my just my position was we don't do anything, we don't build anything until we've raised all the money. And we did raise all the money. We finished up that campaign. I forgot when it was uh, last early last year. Early, uh, yeah, early last year, 2007. So how do you feel about the way it's turned out? I like it very much. I was head of the committee. I have no choice. <laughs> we had a Green Vision Committee, which uh, had the job of planning what to do. That was a lot of fun. We must have met 30 times at 7.30 in the morning over in my office. And uh, and then we, uh, having, uh, having agreed on the plan and priced it out, we knew it would cost us a million dollars. We also knew that we wanted an endowment. The green trustees have never had any money. They have no revenue. All the money they have was what they begged from the town, which is a terrible way to do business. Uh, so my sense was, uh, if we're going to do anything, let's do it right. Let's raise an endowment that will be good, big enough to generate enough revenue that we'll be able to meet all the costs without bothering the town anymore. Uh, and in more than meet them the way as we have in the past, more than that, so we can have a really high-quality green. Because we always complain that we don't have enough money to do this or that, we don't have enough money to plant new azalea shrubs, for instance, whatever it is. And so we agreed, we priced all that stuff out, and we came up with a conclusion that in order to have an endowment that would achieve that and that would grow with the passage of the years, and avoid the, any necessity in the future of raising any more money for the green. We needed a kitty, we needed a fund, an endowment of 3.6 million. Then once we agreed on the uh, improvements that we wanted to make, the statuary and that kind of thing, we priced that out and that came to a million. Add the two together, we got 4.6 million. So that gave us the goal for a campaign the Green Vision campaign. I was chairman of that of that, that effort. And we worked real hard at that for, what, three years, I guess. And finally rang the bell, got our 4.6. 4. And we had agreed also that we were going to start getting to this halfway and fail. We were going to wait until we succeeded. Once we succeeded, had the money, we'd do it. And we did. You're a, you're a master of fundraising. What is the secret to prying big bucks out of people? <laughs> well, I've been involved in... Uh, we raised eight and a half million with the community theater back in the early days when it was a question whether this place is going to be a parking lot or a theater. And then I got involved in the library, which is a labor of love. They badly needed an improvement, uh, an expansion. Marstown Library, Marstown Township Library. And uh, I tried not to be chairman of that campaign. Someone else, I, I tried to recruit someone else. But they had great difficulty, and so I stepped in and I ran what I called the victory campaign for to raise $8 million. 
And we did. And with that in mind, I put off the green. What happened? Yeah, I put off the green because I couldn't do. I didn't want to do two at one time. And uh, we raised the eight million for the library, and then we did the green. And I did, led the thing for the green. So when people see you coming, they know. Uh oh. Yeah, there, there's some of that. There is some of that. I'm sure people say, "Oh, he, here's Wiley again, looking for money." So how do you do it? Uh, uh, can't summarize it and uh, let me see the elements are it's got to be a worthy project I mean it's got to really be a worthy, it's like a poem does it move you uh, do you feel it or, or don't you if you don't better not get into it in the community theater it was a matter of uh, well people had written it off you know it was closed it was boarded up and uh, people just assumed it was going out of business. I, I thought it was, for sure. It, it was out of business. Just a question of whether it's going to be torn down now or later. Uh, but once the, uh, once the idea was circulated that maybe, maybe this thing could be saved, it was inspiring to people. When they made this, this I did not do this, but when they made the announcement, <clears throat> that they were going to try to reopen the theater and pry the plywood off the, the windows and the doors uh, and, and that they wanted volunteers. 300 people showed up. Amazing. And when you put it together, and what we did was to, we remind people of, of what a uh, great place that was and we were satisfied what a good, great place it could be and showed them that we thought we had the ability to get from here to there. Well, that was exciting. It was just exciting. No trouble whatsoever getting people there to help. Uh, 300 volunteers. I got a group of 25 people together at 7 o'clock every morning to talk about fundraising. Anyway. That's a short version of that story. And this, we, I did a similar thing in the library. It was so clearly needed. It's almost embarrassing not to have it. Uh, of course, it was a different uh, kind of a project. It didn't have quite the gut appeal that the theater did. But uh, there was enough. And <clears throat> the library, like the theater, has lots of old friends. It's amazing the number of people, uh, perhaps eminent people, who would like, uh, who's the gal from Burnersville? Meryl Streep, who will tell you that uh, she had her first date uh, in the community theater. And it just, I'm telling you, I have had at least 50 people tell me that. And these are not just people from Morristown. When I was a kid, and that had something to do with it because I grew up there. If you had a, a, a date and a, you were going to have a fancy evening and spend a, a dollar or two, there was no choice as to where to go, but you go to the community theater. You might sit in the balcony in the back row, but you'd go to the community theater. And if you lived close to the river, you probably would go to New York, but if you lived this side of the river, if you were from the Oranges or Maplewood or even Nutley, Certainly uh, Elizabeth or Union, 
you would come to the community theater. This is where the first run movies were. So it had a wide appeal. And so we, we drew on that appeal, that's all. Told the people, told the people, this can be done, help out. Yeah, today it's a gorgeous facility inside. What was it like then? It was terrible. Well. As a kid, when you were going there. Oh, as a kid, it was beautiful. The, the, the auditorium was as it is now, except now, very recently, the stage has been pushed back and, and expanded a bit. But it was a glorious uh, theater. It was the showplace of North Jersey. Was there live entertainment there? No. Maybe a little bit here and there, but no. Fundamentally, it was a theater, movie theater. Walter Reed's uh, was Walter Reed, the queen of Walter Reed's uh, chain of theaters. And then it, uh, and then as movies faded out and television came in, it limped along for a number of years. Uh, there was a fellow that lived there with his dog who tried to run movies. It was it was distressing uh, and depressing. But uh, it fortunately wasn't torn down. It, it might as well have been because it was all boarded up. But we got it going. You're listening to Morristown Green's 2007 interview with the late Steve Wiley, who now has his own statue outside the Morristown and Morris Township Library. When we come back... That was a bloody, fierce battle. I was not a popular person. We're honored to welcome the Community Foundation of New Jersey as a proud sponsor of this special Morristown Green podcast in memory of Steve Wiley, a trailblazer in our community. For more than 40 years, the Community Foundation of New Jersey has worked with purpose-driven individuals like Steve Wiley and with families and businesses who seek to make our communities safer, stronger, healthier, and more resilient. From creative projects that tackle critical societal and policy issues to scholarship funds, corporate philanthropy, planned giving, and donor-advised funds, the Community Foundation manages nearly every kind of giving and tailors solutions to meet vital needs. To learn how you can join this community, visit cfnj.org. You speak about this community with real passion. What does uh, Morristown mean to you? Well, I think the... uh the fact that I was born and raised here has something to do with it. I'm not sure it does. So you have all kinds of attachments and associations. I do. When I graduated from high school, the uh, graduation ceremony was in the community theater. And you don't forget that kind of thing. And I'm, I'm one kid out of hundreds who had the same experience. But you could have relocated anywhere you wanted to, and uh, you chose to stay here. Yeah. Uh, why did I stay? Well, lots of friends, associations, law practice. <clears throat> Got into business here. We started the first Mars Bank, started Mars Cablevision. Mars, Mars, Mars. I was always involved in something having to do with Morristown or, or Morris. So what makes it special? Yeah. What, what, makes would, it- what would make it special? I love that high school, the school system. I was involved in a case. In fact, I initiated the case to to merge the towns, town and township schools. That was a bloody, fierce battle that had to go to the Supreme Court to finally be resolved. And I was not a popular person. 
but I re-succeeded. Why'd you do it? Because I saw happening in this community the same thing that uh, I've seen elsewhere. We had a, a heavily, heavily uh, heavy minority population center in Marstown, a largely white ring around that. It was about to blow back in the seven, late 70s. There, people were moving out. No one would move into Morristown, certainly no white person. Uh, people would, were moving out. If they could afford it, they were moving out. I went through a case uh, that took two or three weeks to try to prove this to a court, and I proved it. I called real estate people anyway, to point out that this really is one community, maybe two towns, but it's one community. Everybody goes to the same shoe store, everybody goes to the same theater if there is one. Uh, but uh, it's being separated and, and having a, uh, a minority center and a white ring around it is nothing but a guarantee of, of an explosion and you're gonna lose everybody. So anyway, to me the key to the success and stability and prosperity of this area economically and otherwise, is the school. If you don't have a good Morris School District school system that is attractive to parents who, could, who have a choice, you're going to have trouble. You are going to have trouble. And if you look around New Jersey, take a look at the county seats uh, in New Jersey. You know them. Look at Mercer, Trenton. Nobody would go to Trenton. Here there's this great city, one time great city. It's our state capital and none of us would go there unless we're, we get a subpoena to go there. Camden is hopeless. Uh, New Brunswick was a disaster. They had to lock the school. And on and on, Jersey City, that's a county seat. Look at Hackensack was awful. People were moving, businesses were moving out of Hackensack so fast it made the wind and stirred up a wind. Patterson, county seat of say county, same thing. People, nobody would go there for lunch. Someone invited you to lunch in, uh, in Camden. You get yourself a new friend. Well, Morristown was very, very, it was on the edge of that. And fortunately, we appointed it. So, yeah, I could have, well, anyway, anyone would have a choice, but I, I was just deeply attached here, deeply involved. I, I wanted, I wanted to uh, do it. So I did it. And looking forward, uh, how do you feel about the future of Morristown? Great, very strong school district is terrific. Has, has, has outstanding leadership. Tom Ficarra, the superintendent there, is first rate. And uh, the community, well, you just look around the community with the redevelopment projects, Crescentello's uh, putting through. Uh, he's, he's a very effective kind of a person doing that and needs to be done. And Morristown is going to be, a, it is already a tower of strength. It's going to be more of a tower of strength in times to come. Don't go away. When we come back, Steve Wiley shares some of his poetry. I'm Chad Lineweaver, director of the Morristown and Morristownship Library. 
Here at the library, we're thrilled to now have a beautiful statue in the likeness of Steve Wiley along South Street to remind future generations of this noted Morristonian. A grassroots effort among many people who admired Steve made this project a reality to honor Steve's contributions to the town he loved. Steve's tireless efforts are well known, but he did a lot for our library as well. He spearheaded an addition in 2006 that added a whole new wing to the library, expanding services to children and young adults, and provided much-needed space for our nonfiction and media collections. Most notably, the expansion greatly added to our North Jersey History and Genealogy Center, a place where our staff preserves and collects the area's history for generations to come. The 2006 wing also provided for great reading spaces for patrons, and a wonderful gallery space that is still used to showcase artwork of the community and library collections. Come and see the library Steve Wiley loved for yourself and pay a visit to Mr. Wiley while you're at it. When I interviewed Steve Wiley in December 2007, he had just published his second book of poetry, Mockingbird Come Home. His new statue outside the Morristown and Township Library depicts him holding a volume of his poetry. Next time you see the statue, try to envision it reciting these poems. I'll read a poem I call Fort Nonsense. Since I live on Community Place, I'm close by the courthouse area and the hill behind it where Fort Nonsense is located. Surprising to me that not more... There's more visitation of it, because I enjoy it. And I wrote this poem with that in mind. It's called Fort Nonsense. Washington's Upper Redoubt, his Morristown Lookout. A half mile out of town and 200 feet up. A log pyramid beacon waiting to be fired to cascade alerts throughout North Jersey. I climb there for exertion. I rest there for reflection, remote and wild and silent, deer and fox and thought. You can see our republic from that hill. Living where we do, we're close to the community theater, and I've been active in that uh, project. So we enjoy going there, and uh, not too long ago we went there when there was a string quartet performing, a great uh, string quartet. And it resulted in a poem, a short poem, not so much about the quartet as about a moth. Uh, I called it the white moth. It goes like this, an elegant quartet spotlighted from above. This is on the stage of the community theater. An elegant quartet spotlighted from above, four strings rising to Mozart's challenge. A white moth spiraling up in glowing cone, kissing the light and tumbling down, circling up again and then again, drawn to the piercing light, damming the heat. Finale and forte, the white moth mighty in its crescendos, unyielding in its quest, fearless in its touchings, in even its last flutter of life. Uh, Judy and I go to uh, Key West when the weather gets too cold to be pleasant around here. And uh, we enjoy it as 
everyone does when they get down there. And that occasioned a poem or two in the course of my writing. Here's one, for instance, called Key West. Oh, sure, it is in New York. There is no Met, no subway, no alternate side of the street parking, no soaring office buildings that see the sunrise at different times from top and bottom. But some do like it. Escaped Cuban Coast Guard officers think it's heaven. Thousands of cruisers stroll here daily, and Rhode Island red strutters cluck approval all over town. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Bishop lived on white for a decade. She lost it, so she must have loved it. It's a place where people come together to be left alone. The sun rises here at the same time for everyone. And another uh, little poem on Key West, related to Key West, called Café Con Leche. If you haven't had Café Con Leche, you should try it. It's terrific. Uh, here's the way it goes. It normally takes a Cuban hand, mostly milk, then fortissimo coffee. But Mustafa from Bangladesh has developed a knack for it. Sweet start for the day. We leave his grocery and sip along William Street, kick wood chips in the dog park, return from breakfast at the deli through Old Town. A street artist works low behind a parked car, sights along his brush between strokes like a sniper taking aim from cover. Said if the owner saw him painting her mansion, she might take down that shotgun again. Let me read a poem called Visiting Bernard. This has to do with uh, a place up in Vermont where we have a summer cabin. And there's a farm next to it, uh, right next to Lake Champlain. A farm next to it uh, that's operated by an elderly family of brothers and one sister. And uh, as a matter of fact, it got down to the point where only Bernard, 90-year-old fellow, was left. And I would go to see him every year just to say hello and chew the fat. And I wrote this poem the last time I saw him, called Visiting Bernard. Each, each summer I stopped at the farmhouse, the one on Kibbe Point beyond our cabin, through the willows and cottonwoods, past the red Studebaker chassis and the high grass, and the old barn braced against the west wind, to say hello at the La Lumiere's house. No one answered my knock this afternoon, so I took a step in and called my name. Bernard's big voice was thin as he hailed me from the easy chair in the parlor corner. He had always been the family leader, but now at 90 he carried the last light. As my eyes adjusted to the shaded house, I saw he was in bathrobe and slippers. He still had that full head of jet black hair, but his hands had stiffened up. He was unshaven and long whiskers ringed his neck. Old newspapers were stacked in the dining room next to a folding bed set up beside the big table. I picked up a church bulletin from St. Rose of Lima and the crutch that had fallen from his chair arm. We talked weather, mostly me at first, with Bernard repeating my words in his Quebec accent then adding a yaw with a chuckle as he warmed up. 
When we talked farming, he leaned forward. Milk 22 Guernsey before sunup. Cannery was a good customer. 10 acres in sweet corn for them. 12 in yellow eyes for their pork and beans. 65 in hay for us wasn't too bad. I could see half an hour was about enough. As I excused myself, I almost mentioned that we likely wouldn't see each other again. On the lighthearted side, let me read uh, one called To My Elbows. You're properly named for your funny shape and you move in the strangest ways. You're the L, my body's knight, guarding both of my flanks. You can deliver a gentle jab when needed, move hands to hips in defiance, and you are a joint of many talents. You can make me pat or hug, hug or rub, hide my hands in penitent pockets, even surrender me with forearms raised. You do tend to wear out my jackets, though, and you're tough enough to heal and unpretty. But overall, you're commendable joints. I'd be awkward and stiff without you. We, uh, by the passage of time, all of a sudden we become grandparents. In fact, we have five grandchildren. And uh, that occasions a poem now and then. This one is called Grandparenting. When your grandsons grow bigger than you and begin to excel in soccer, rugby, and water polo, and one is an undefeated arm wrestler, and their eyes soften and blink when you reminisce, and your 11-year-old granddaughters can high jump as high as your sore shoulder and throw you off balance in Indian wrestling. They all have an old friend called Blackberry, and their eyebrows squeeze together when you say you met Truman, but not Lincoln. It's time to get the easel and some paints. Start your memoirs or compose some poems. Turn in your racket and try bocce. Call the pharmacy to refill those prescriptions and settle down for a nap before supper. Steve Wiley, thanks for talking to us and all the best. Thank you. morning with Steve Wiley is one of my most cherished Morristown Green memories. The website was just getting started, and Steve, true to his civic reputation, offered to help me any way he could. What really inspired me was his poetry. Steve Wiley could have spent his golden years taking a leisurely victory lap, but he insisted on challenging himself. Like everything else he did, from crafting sturdy furniture to coaxing contributions for worthy projects, Steve Wiley did it well, and he made it look easy. Thank you, Steve. Kudos to Stuart Sendell and Hans Decker of the Community Foundation of New Jersey for a statue worthy of the man. Special thanks to our sponsors today, the Community Foundation of New Jersey, creating and scaling custom solutions for philanthropy-minded individuals, families, and businesses for more than 40 years. And... The Morristown and Morris Township Library, your doorway to the past, present, and future. And the Mayo Performing Arts Center. See the full lineup of events at mayoarts.org. 
and the Morris Educational Foundation, working to enrich and inspire the academic pursuits of all our students in the Morris School District, from preschool through high school. Original music today was by Domenico Randazzo. Check him out at domenicosounds.com. And thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please help us continue by making a donation at morristowngreen.com. Past episodes of the Morristown Green podcast are there and also on Google Podcasts. For morristowngreen.com, I'm Kevin Coughlin. Let's go out with one more poem from Steve Wiley. My wife Judy and I uh, drive by, drive down James Street frequently. And when you do that, you go by Foots Pond, as it is identified. And it's being fixed up nicely, although they're preserving the the uh, character of the pond. Uh, we decided that we ought to get a little closer and go see it, so we went down and took a sandwich with us and sat there early in the morning. Uh, took a breakfast sandwich and sat there early in the morning and uh, took in the sights. And we that resulted in a poem which I call Circles. We visited Foots Pond early this morning, a shallow, still, freshwater marsh, edged by bulrushes and tufted high grass. Six black ducks paddling for breakfast, a stalking great blue spreading his wings to lure fish into the shade of his umbrella, a pair of white cranes pecking in the cattails. Bullfrogs booming out the background beat like the bass guitars in a blues group. But oh, the circles, every touching of the water's face, a minnow touching up, a petal touching down, produces a perfect surface circle till the face of the pond becomes a mirror of the solar systems in the sky. Circles ringed by circles, each dilating until it disappears.